wasn't quite sure what to expect after you came in today and saw that the series was going to be about money. I thought maybe half of you uh, might decide that you wanted to be running for the doors. And the reason I say that is that I've never done a series on money here in the nine-year history of City Church. Never once done a series on money. We, we talk about money occasionally, like at the, you know, the last part of November maybe, uh, through December, we'll make some announcements about money, but we've never done a sermon series on money. And if the fact that I'm going to do a sermon series on money sounds painful to you, take heart. It's only going to last three weeks. Most series around here, you know, usually five, six, seven, eight weeks, something like that. But I thought we would ease into the topic this morning with a short, uh, this, this time with a short series. Let's start with a little game. Movies, you know, have been the source of a lot of famous quotes over the years. I want to see if you can match the, the quote to the movie. We'll start easy. How about this one? Now, I'm going to give you the quote, and then don't shout out the answer yet. I'm going to give you some options, see if you can match the quote to the movie. First one is, I'm king of the world. Did that come from A, The Last Jedi, B, Mad Max Fury, Fury Road, C, Inception, or D, Titanic? D, Titanic, correct. Okay, here's another. Get a little harder. Just keep swimming. Did that line come from Jaws, A, B, Titanic, C, Finding Nemo, or D, On the Waterfront? C, Finding Nemo, correct. Okay, how about this one? You can't handle the truth. A, gone, are you seeing a theme with these? Uh, uh, A, uh, Gone with the Wind, B, Casablanca, C, Joker, or D, A Few Good Men? Okay, D, A Few Good Men. Okay, last one. This one's longer. Might be a little more difficult. We'll see. Here's the quote. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Okay, did that come from A, the Wolf of Wall Street, B, Casino, C, Wall Street, or D, The Godfather? Uh, you're not quite sure about this one, are you? C, Wall Street. That's right, Wall Street. It's from a, the 1987 movie Wall Street and the character Gordon Gecko. How about that for a life slogan? Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed is good. I mean, there's a, there's a creed to live by. Now, we'll be honest that no one sitting in church is going to agree that greed is good, at least not in public, but I do have to tell you that I wonder if I were more honest with myself, I wonder if I might just find that deep down inside of me, in the place that I never let you see and rarely ever let myself see, I wonder if we might find that I really do believe that greed is good, greed is right, greed works. Think about that for a moment. How would I know if that's something I really believe? Well, one way I would know is I could look at how I spend my money. So in the interest of full disclosure, I'm going to put all of my financial statements from January to August up on the screen, unless I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it is true, one way that we can know that something is an idol in our lives is by looking at the way that we spend our money. And since I'm not going to put my finances up on the screen and I don't 
suspect that any of you are going to volunteer to do that right now either. Here are a few relevant statistics nationally that might say something about America and greed. Like, for instance, Americans collectively owe approximately $4.2 trillion in consumer debt. The average household carries approximately $6,500 in credit card debt. I think this one's interesting. There are 50,523 self-storage businesses nationwide with 1.7 billion square feet of rentable space, and this is just in America alone. In other words, uh, like we have so much stuff, we don't even know where to put it all. And in case you're tempted to think that greed is an out there problem, but not an in here problem, listen to this. This is from a source called the Nonprofit Source, and I think this is fascinating. Christians give 2.5% of their annual income, which is less than was given during the Great Depression. The average rate of giving during the Great Depression was 3.3%. It's kind of remarkable. I don't know. What do you think? Does that say anything about whether greed is a problem in the church or not? Over and against the creed that greed is good, the Bible says that greed is actually idolatry. And one of the things that we know from the Bible is that idolatrous cultures always became death cultures, cultures of hopelessness, cultures of despair, which is fascinating. Because in 1994, seven years after the movie Wall Street came out, a 27-year-old woman by the name of Elizabeth Wurzel, a graduate of Harvard University, wrote a memoir of her personal struggles with depression, and it was called Prozac Nation. Maybe you've heard of the book, Prozac Nation. In one passage of the book, she wrote this. She wrote, what, if, what is depression if it isn't the most striking, poignant, psychic challenge to the American dream? And in that sense, what is my book if not some miserable indictment of the society we live in? The cry of the depressive is a demand for more and better than this country has to offer at the apex of advantage. It is a very loud scream that says that happiness is not about status, it's not about a two-car garage, it's not about money, beachfront property, degrees from fancy schools, membership in prestigious clubs. Were it any of those things, by now I think that I would be happy. Could there be a causal relationship between our pursuit of the American dream and depression? Today, uh, depression is the second most prevalent illness in the United States. By the way, it's not just depression. Over 40 million people in America right now have some kind of addiction. Now, here's a way to think about that. People from all over the world want to get into America to pursue the American dream, and yet 40 million Americans have developed some kind of an addiction trying to escape it. Could it be possible that there is a causal relationship between our not national unhappiness and our greed. Now, depression and addiction are complex subjects, so I wouldn't want to argue that greed is the only cause. But is it a cause of our national unhappiness? Well, greed is idolatry, the Bible says, and idolatrous cultures always became cultures of death and despair and hopelessness. 
There's another way to determine if greed has become an idol for you, and it's to look at how the Bible describes an idol and see if that sounds like something that resonates with you. And to that end, I want to take you back in time to one of the most one of the classic examples of idolatry in Israel's history found in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. If you have a Bible, find Exodus chapter 32 in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Near the, I mean, like it's the second book of the Bible. Chapter 32. And I want to show you five characteristics this morning of an idol. And as we go through these, consider, you know, whether money has become an idol for you. Because if it is, know this. Uh, it is dangerous to your soul. It is destructive to your soul. Now, just to give you a little context for Exodus chapter 32, the pa- this passage of Scripture occurs shortly after the parting of the Red Sea and as Israel was escaping bondage in Egypt. So, God parts the Red Sea, Israel escapes, they go through the Red Sea, and they get to the, other, to the other side, and they are freed from slavery in Egypt. God is forming a nation of people out of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as He promised that He would. And out of this nation, obviously, ultimately, will come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has summoned Israel's leader, a man by the name of Moses, to a mountaintop meeting to give Moses the law by which the nation of Israel is to Uh, or which the nation of Israel is to follow, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Moses has been gone for 40 days and for 40 nights. And I want you to notice the effect of Moses' absence on these people. Exodus chapter 32, uh, verse 1, verse 1, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long, 40 days and 40 nights, and coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron, and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all of the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Now, uh, three of our five characteristics of an idol are found in these first uh, four verses. First, I want you to notice this, that idols emerge, idols emerge from our fears. Uh, Idols emerge from our fears. Did you see that here? Moses was their only visible sign of God's presence with him. He's been gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and they have no idea what's happened to him. And the people are afraid. And in their fear, well, they make an idol. I told you guys, it wasn't long ago, maybe just a few weeks ago, that when I first moved here from Dallas, a friend of mine uh, from here heard me preaching, and he said to me, you're preaching like you're still in Dallas. He said, you talk about selfish ambition, and you talk about people trying to impress one another with their expensive cars and homes. And he said, Evansville isn't Dallas. He said, the real issue in Evansville is that people in Evansville build their lives around safety and security. And he said, you need to change the way that you preach. Now, my question is, what's the other side? What's on the other side of safety and security? What's the flip side of that? Fear. Fear. And can you see how an overemphasis 
on safety and security could lead to idolizing money. Now, sure, it looks different than it looks, say, in Dallas. It's not flashy and glitzy, perhaps, but hoarding money for the sake of safety and security is no less greedy than wanting money so that you can spend it on stuff and impress people. It's just greed in a different package, right? Idols suck the life out of us because they're unreliable gods which emerge from our fears. They promise us security and safety, well, until they don't. All it takes is an 8.5% rate of inflation and the threat of a looming recession to make all of that safety and security disappear, fall right through your fingers. That's all it takes. Idols tend to emerge from our fears, but they tend to disappear when we need them the most. Right? It's number one. Let's keep moving. Here's the second characteristic of an idol. Idols emerge from the culture in which one lives. They emerge from the culture in which one lives. If you're not familiar with the culture of the, of the ancient Near East, you might wonder where in the world these people came up with the idea to make a golden calf. But Bull or calf figurines were quite common in the religious ceremonies of the pagan cultures in the ancient Near East. Abraham, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, had come out of an idolatrous culture himself. So these people were simply mimicking what they had seen and heard in their own cultures of origin and the cultures around them all of their lives since childhood. When afraid, worship an idol. That's what their culture said. That was their normal. You grow up in an idolatrous culture, you hardly even notice that you're an idolater. And then you take a short-term missions trip to, say, a third-world country, and you realize that if you never bought another thing, you'd, you'd have more than anyone in that country. Some time ago, uh, a magazine suggested nine rather drastic steps Westerners would have to take to truly identify with the developing world. First, take out the furniture, leave a few old blankets, a kitchen table, maybe a wooden chair. Second, throw out your clothes. Each person in the family may keep the oldest suit or dress, a shirt or blouse. The head of the family has the only pair of shoes. Third, all kitchen appliances have vanished. Fourth, dismantle the bathroom, shut off the running water, take out the wiring and the lights and everything that runs by electricity. Fifth, take away the house and move the family into the tool shed. Sixth, no more postmen, firemen, government services. Seventh, throw out your bank books, stock certificates, pension plans, insurance policies. You now have a cash hoard of five dollars. Eight, Get out and start cultivating your three acres. Try hard to raise $300 in cash crops because your landlord wants a third and your money lender 10%. Ninth, find some way for your children to bring in a little extra so that you have something to eat most days, but it won't be enough to keep bodies healthy. So lop off 25 to 30 years of your life. <laughs> and so let's face it, compared to much of the rest of the world, any one of us, in our own homes, has an embarrassment of riches. And so, I, I, here's the question that I would ask you. You know, since, since idols emerge from our cultures, and like you, don't, you hardly even notice, my question would be, would you even know if you're greedy? Like, would you even know? 
Idols emerge not only from our fears, but from our culture, the culture in which we live. And they're hard to detect because worshiping the idol just seems normal to us. Third characteristic of an idol is that idols are addictive. When stress or crisis or boredom sets in, we're driven back to our idols again and again and again. What you read about here in Exodus chapter 32 is the first incidence of idolatry in the people of Israel fashioning a golden calf, but it will not be the last. Over and over and over again throughout Israel's history, the people of Israel keep going back to idolatry. They keep going back. They come out of it, they go back. They come out of it, they go back. It's addictive. They will, and they will eventually, eventually what happens is that the nation of Israel comes full circle. They were freed from Egypt to be their own sovereign nation, but eventually because of their idolatry, they, own, they end up eventually living in subjection to other nations. If it feels like a stretch to you to call greed an addiction, I want you to listen to what a former derivatives trader on Wall Street by the name of Sam Polk has to say. Uh, Sam Polk wrote an article in the New York Times uh, several years ago, and it was entitled, For the Love of Money. And here's how he starts the article. In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason. An alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. He goes on to speak about the difficulty he had in leaving Wall Street, even though he knew his love of money was destroying him. And he says this, he says, it was incredibly difficult to leave. I was terrified of running out of money and of foregoing future bonuses. The first year I left was really hard. I went through what I can only describe as withdrawal, waking up at night, nights panicked about running out of money, scouring the headlines to see which of my old co-workers had gotten promoted. Over time, it got easier, but my wealth addiction still hasn't gone completely away. Sometimes I still buy lottery tickets. And we said a few moments ago that our idols emerge from our fears. And it's fascinating that Polk describes precisely that when he uses words like terrified and, and panicked. If the love of money is an idol of yours, you will likely find that your attachment to it is very much like any other addiction, unable to be satisfied and driven by fear. that sound familiar? Unable to be satisfied, driven by fear. Idols are addictive in nature. Fourth characteristic of an idol uh, comes in the last part of verse 4 after they had fashioned this golden calf. Read from there. It says, then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. 
Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, Make a note of this. Idols obscure the deepest longings of the soul. Idols obscure the deepest longings of the soul. These verses are hard to make sense of. On the one hand, Aaron and the people have fashioned an idol and they have declared this golden calf their God instead of uh, the God. But on the other hand, Aaron says, we're going to celebrate a festival to the Lord. It's very confusing to understand who or what they think they are worshiping. But you see, this is what idols do. And, And here's what I mean. Someone once said that the unsatisfied longing for God is what drives human beings above all else. The psalmist put it like this. He said, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. That wasn't a comment just about the psalmist. That's a universal truth. All human beings, souls, thirst for uh, intimacy with God. Thirst is a thirst is a word that describes an insatiable longing after one of the essentials of life, and it must be satisfied to live. But idols obscure that for which we thirst. C.S. Lewis once wrote that we have an insatiable longing in the heart for we know not what. And precisely, you see, precisely, we know not what Because that's what idols do. They obscure and divert and attempt to artificially replace this insatiable thirst for God so that we worship the created rather than the creator. Which is precisely what the people in these verses were doing. Worshiping a golden calf rather than the creator of gold and the creator of calves. The result of which is... Well, I feel bad here. I'm going to... I know I've kind of overwhelmed you here with quotes, so I apologize. But the result of worshiping the created rather than the creator is, I think, well described in Thoreau's observation about men. He says, most men, and we'll include women, lead lives of quiet desperation. Because you see, we worship the created rather than the creator. Quiet desperation. Let me ask it again. Is it possible that there is a causal relationship between greed and our national epidemics of depression and addiction? Idols, including the inordinate desire for money, obscure the deepest longings of the soul, leaving people with a thirst that can't be satisfied, an insatiable longing in the heart, for we know not what. Well, last but not least, while all of this is happening, God alerts Moses about what's going on, and Moses goes down the mountain and goes down to the people, and he's, he's angry. Skip down to verse 21. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible. Moses said to Aaron, what do these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. 
They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> Fifth characteristic of an idol is that idols are always surrounded by rationalizations. They're always surrounded by rationalizations. I don't know what happened. It was their fault. All I did was throw some gold in the fire and out came this cap. Violated the second law of thermodynamics. I'm telling you, it was an absolute miracle. And we laugh, but the truth is our idols are wrapped up in similarly comical excuses and rationalizations. When you heard me start... Uh, talking about greed as idolatry a few minutes ago, the first thing that popped into some of your minds was maybe the love of money could be an idol I have. And now you're babbling in your mind with all kinds of reasons why it's not your idol. It's not my idol. You wrapped it up in a cocoon of excuses. Money's not, money's not an idol for me. It's just a way of keeping score. I'm not greedy. I'm just, I'm just saving for the future. Some of you are going to get in your car's to go home and, and you're going to say, well, there you go. See, that's all churches care about is money. <laughs> Possibly a rationalization, maybe. Look, I get it. I do the same things with my idols. No, honey, I'm telling you, I really needed this brand new putter. It's going to change my entire golf game. Say, what, dear? I know, I know, I know. I have a lot of computer monitors on the desk upstairs, but I really needed three monitors. I don't see how I could work without them. See, I understand what you do because I do it too. Idols are, they're always surrounded by rationalizations. I just, I, 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 I just put the gold in the fire and out came this calf. It's not an idol, not my idol. I, I, it's not, it's not. That's the way it works. Well, just a few final thoughts. One is this, that anything other than Christ that you believe gives you security, joy, peace, power, it becomes a monster that will destroy you. It has you by the throat. You're a slave to it, and you have to kill it before it destroys you. Here's another uh, final thought, and this is really important to me that you understand this. Uh, I want you to understand that I'm not talking about greed today to guilt you or shame you. And do you know why? Do you know why? Uh, the reason is that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't about making people less greedy. It's also not about making people less, I don't know, gossipy or slothful or gluttonous or whatever. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a gospel of sin management. That's not the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about transformation through love. Guilting and shaming people out of some sin isn't loving. And I'll just give you an example of this. There's this passage in the New Testament in which the Apostle Paul is writing to a church about generosity. And here's what he says, and pay close attention to this, because in this you'll see the difference between a legalistic religion and the gospel. He says this. Here's what he says to them. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, see that you excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you 
But I want to test the reality of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, do you, do you see what Paul is saying here? Do you see what he's doing? He puts no pressure on their will. He doesn't say, you're Christians, I'm an apostle, you have to give X percent of your money. He, he doesn't do that. He also doesn't use guilt and shame. He doesn't say, you have so much, and look at these poor people. Look at these little orphans with these great big eyes. doesn't do that. Instead, did you notice what he says? It's like he, he's saying, if you don't have the freedom to give your money away in eye-popping proportions and heal the world with your wealth, it's because money has become a destructive idol in your life that is obscuring who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so he says, think about the radical generosity of Jesus Christ on the cross until you get freedom from your slavery to the idol of money. And that would be the application from this morning's talk to you. And I'm not going to tell you to give some percentage of your money. I'm not, none of that. I'm not shaming. I'm not guilting either. I would just ask you, consider, is it possible that money has become an idol for me? Not just me, but you too. Has it become an idol for you? And be careful, be careful about all the rationalizations that might surround that, your answer to that question. And you know what? For some of you, the answer will be no. It's, it's not an idol for me. I don't think that just because, you know, you live in America that greed has to be an idol for you. Some of you, the answer will be no. For some, after you work through it and maybe shed yourself of some of the rationalization surrounding it, you might say, yeah, okay, I think it is. And my counsel to you would be to do what the Apostle Paul said to do. Think about the radical generosity of Jesus Christ on the cross until you get freedom from your slavery to the idol of money. Dwell on that. He became poor and so you could become rich. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. This is a very sensitive subject, Lord, and um, I pray that our, this congregation would sense uh, my care and concern for them, that I am not trying to guilt and shame anybody into anything. That's not what the gospel is about. But I, I do pray, too, Lord, that this, that this congregation would, would sense... Uh, my care for them, ultimately your care for them, that greed is a destructive thing. And, you know, I mean, it just sucks the life out of people. And I pray that they would sense your care uh, on, a, on a smaller level, my care for them, that we would talk about this. And give them the courage to be honest with themselves about this and Lord, 
whether it's an idol for us or not, would you focus our eyes on Jesus Christ and the radical generosity he demonstrated to us on the cross? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.